Before I get started on the message part today, just a couple more things in the way of, <coughs> excuse me, updates and announcements. Um, you'll be hearing more about what we're doing with Grace Life Kids a little later in the week, the specifics and things like that. Um, and for those of you that are able <coughs> to be a part of in-person worship next Sunday, I really look forward to seeing you. If you can be there at all, please make sure. And we know, as Jen said, there are some who just aren't able to get out yet, and that's fine too. We love you and miss you. I want to make sure if you aren't able to come, that we miss you too as well, and you're not out of sight and out of mind. Uh, it's important next week because <clears throat> in many respects, we have not met together for about eight months, and it feels like it's almost like a relaunch of Grace Life in some way. So keep that in mind as whether or not you're debating, whether or not you have a time in your schedule. It's really important that as many of us be together that first week as possible. Uh, we're going to have limited space, <clears throat> just like here, more people, but still we can't be 100% capacity at McCurdy's Comedy Theater yet, so just keep that in mind. When the sign-up comes out, make sure you grab your spot, and you'll hear more about the children's ministry later on in the week. So we're going to start with our uh, week 52 <coughs> of our series on the Gospel of Mark. I've entitled this message, Figs and Temples. So I don't know if you've noticed lately, but there seems to be quite a passionate debate about what our government should look like. Have you guys noticed that, or is it just me? <clears throat> you know, what's ironic is, of course there's a debate in our country, but I have seen a big debate among believers. Which candidate or party fits best the agenda of Jesus? What policies are in line with the gospel and the teachings of Christ? <clears throat> and I think, sadly, the result is many have spent time debating what Jesus would do or who he would vote for if he were here, who he'd be telling us to vote for if he were teaching us. And it seems like, you know, a reasonable question for a Christian to ask. I'm not saying it's not a reasonable question. But what's interesting is, and we're going to learn about this today, Jesus actually faced this exact, almost exact same political debate in the first century. <clears throat> you know, Jesus had the chance when he came to straighten Rome out, set up a God-honoring government based on biblical principles, taking care of the poor, helping the needy, <clears throat> moral issues, all those things. He had the power. He had the following, right? Remember Palm Monday? All the people that were with him, everybody was with him. He had the authority. He had the miraculousness. He had the brilliance. He came at just the right time. Everything would have been set up perfectly for Messiah to be the most transcendent, powerful, intriguing, compelling political figure in human history. And he would have certainly constructed the most perfect, benevolent, fair, free form of government in history. Before and after. <clears throat> but you know what Jesus never did? He never took a side for Rome, and he never took a side against Rome. Rome, as evil as many thought as it was, and as great as other people, like the Sadducees thought Rome was great. They liked big Rome. The Pharisees hated Rome. So there was a debate among the Jewish culture. <clears throat> Rome, for Jesus, was almost an afterthought. Instead, 
he was obsessed and focused on one thing, his father's business. His focus was making sure his kingdom was fruitful. So let's look at the passage today. <clears throat> Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. This is a very powerful passage. And by the way, just for you guys that are just tuning in, we don't ever pick passages to match our calendar or what's going on in our lives. We just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. And by his sovereignty, we are happening to preach on what may have been the most political act of Jesus in his whole ministry. Okay? <clears throat> on the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find any fruit on it or anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So in other words, once he cleared it out, he didn't let anyone else come back in. He took control of the temple, especially the court of the Gentiles. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy Jesus, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went back to the hotel. Well, that's the King Joey version. Actually, it says it went back out of the city, but we know what that means. They left Jerusalem, went back to Bethany where they had been staying. All right, so what we do at Grace Life is we look at each passage under three applications. The first one is the history. What about man? What did he do? What was going on? And why and how was he doing it? I've entitled this section Temple Love. So before we get into understanding how much they love the temple, it's important for you to have a brief temple history. I'm going to boil down about thousands, uh, a little over a thousand years of temple history into about a paragraph. So bear with me. The temple, this building had always been the most important critical focus of the nation of Israel. Spiritually, socially, politically, financially, the temple was it. But it was more than just the fact that it was a big, beautiful building. It was the actual location that was sacred to them. This was the actual, where the temple is, the Temple Mount here in Jerusalem. It was the actual spot where Abraham was told to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And there, we remember the story, that he didn't actually have to sacrifice his son. As he was there, God provided a lamb for sacrifice for Abraham instead of his son Isaac. That's a pretty amazing story, if you think about it, right there on the Temple Mount. There was no temple there, it was just a mountain. And we find out that later, when David became king, he actually made it a point to buy that specific plot of land where the story of Abraham and Isaac and the lamb in the thicket took place. And later on, after he was gone, his son became king and his son Solomon built the first temple and it was beautiful. It was gorgeous, right on that very spot. So you understand, it's not just the building, it was the place. Sadly, though, The temple has represented an an ongoing, never-ending cycle that Israel had of turning that place, that spot, and that building into a 
place of idolatry and apostasy, just like they did the golden calves. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain and they made these golden calves and started worshiping that type of idolatry? That's what the temple in that place became to Jews time and time again. So the temple's in place about 350 years. And then because the idolatry got so bad, they were worshiping the temple so poorly in such a wrong way, God allows the Babylonians to come in and conquer Israel and destroy their beautiful temple that Solomon built. What a tremendous heartbreak it was for them as a nation. And why? Because they were corrupt. They had turned the temple into an idol. Now, 70 years after that, the next Babylonian ruler allows Israel to rebuild the temple on that spot in a smaller way, not as grand, but they were able to build enough so that animal sacrifices could resume. A few hundred years later, there's a Greek ruler named Antiochus, and he wants to really tick the Jews off, so he goes into the temple and desecrates it by putting up statues of pagan gods. A little bit later, the Maccabees, a very revered Jewish family, some of you might have heard who they are, they try to sort of revive the temple and revitalize it. Come in and and fix it back up and cleanse it and change it and make it so that once again it became a place of worship, a house of prayer. But again, as was the case, Israel allowed it to turn into a corrupt, idolatrous place. Then we fast forward to 20 B.C., 20 years before Jesus is about to come on the earth. With Rome's approval, Herod the Great, a Jewish king, begins an 80-year project of renovating, revitalizing, and expanding the temple into a great form, trying to get it back to the way it was under Solomon. So that's a brief history of the temple and where we are today at this point in the story, okay? And I want to talk about the fact that these people, these first century Jews, had tremendous hope in this building. It represented everything for them. This is an unmistakable, by the way, I want you to understand, this part of the Gospel of Mark has an unmistakable political angle to the story. It centers around hope that Jesus the Messiah will be there, come in, and cleanse Jerusalem from Rome. He will either make Rome righteous and worship of Jehovah or defeat them totally. That was their hope when they walked in to Jerusalem on Palm Monday and everybody was excited. Now this massive project that they're undertaking at this particular time, this project of revitalizing and expanding the temple, it becomes the political, religious, and financial obsession of all first century Jews, liberal and conservative, Sadducees and Pharisees. It is the primary sole focus of all of them. They have different ideas of how it could happen, Some want to work with Rome, some want to work without Rome. There's a lot of different ways, but they all have one goal. we got to make the temple what it was under Solomon. This symbol of the temple and its renovation, the whole project, was the core of their national pride, their heritage, and it is also the most important economic catalyst for the whole region. Anyone that was associated with this project With this renovation, this whole operation was wealthy, powerful, revered, and even feared. 
Now, later on in 70 AD, after Jesus is gone, this beautiful temple they've been working on for 80 years, from 70, from 20 BC to 60 AD, 10 years later, it's destroyed again. And now today, there's actually a mosque sitting on that site of Abraham and Isaac and the temple. <clears throat> it's been there, no temple, for almost 2,000 years. And affinity and love they had for this third iteration of the temple. At this point, when Jesus comes back into town, <clears throat> you understand it's at all-time highs. Right? The temple is the thing. But the love of the temple isn't spiritual. It's mostly worldly, temporal, political, and selfish. It is their hope. This building, this project, it's what makes them feel special. Blessed above any other nation. Superior to all other people groups. And they do believe this temple and their love for it will be the catalyst for liberation of Rome. Or from Rome. And it's more than just the center of their spiritual heritage. It has become, in fact, the catalyst for their terrible spiritual narcissism. See, the first century Jews... <clears throat> even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they actually all agreed on this point. They wanted the temple to all themselves. They had no room for Gentiles worshiping with them. They didn't want them to be a part of Israel. And the temple represents this prestige, this influence, this wealth, but most sadly, it is their source of hope for a better future. Their hope is in a building. And then Jesus talks about this later, but I want to describe to you what happened and how it became this house of thieves that Jesus calls it. The whole nation of Israel was supposed to be a priesthood to the world to create a temple that is a house of prayer for everyone. As a matter of fact, Moses says in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, he says, if you are careful and you obey, I will make you, Israel, a kingdom of priests. And the temple, actually, many people don't realize this, when the temple, the original, was designed, it was supposed to include a place called the Court of the Gentiles. You know where the market was set up at this time? The one that Jesus is about to cleanse? It was set up in the Court of the Gentiles. So there was no room for Gentiles in their plan for the temple. It was for them. <clears throat> But they were supposed to be a priesthood to the, all the nations. That's what God said in Exodus. If you obey, you will be a priesthood to all nations. In other words, you will take the message of redemption and hope and restoration through Jehovah and Messiah to the world. But they had zero interest in that. Did you know, in fact, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he had a prayer. And part of that prayer included asking God to bring Gentiles to the temple so they could see the one true living God. Now, every day in the court of Gentiles, but especially on a week like this where it's Passover week, right? Where, there's, where the city is swelling up to two million people, probably six, seven times its normal population. Every day, but especially a week like this, the temple would look like one of those massive craft shows we have here in Sarasota. Have you ever seen like, those tents pop up all over the place? They block Siesta Key or they block downtown. That's what it looks like, but a lot louder and a bunch of alive animals 
and people ripping each other off all over the place. That's what it looks like every day, but during Passover, it's off the chain. And so with Rome's permission, because Rome would get a cut of all this action, Pharisees and Sadducees, liberal and conservative, working together, ran a disgusting extortion racket with kickbacks to Caesar. And there are vendors everywhere selling temple garments, sacrificial animals, food, rabbi services in case your rabbi didn't make it with you or he's dead. Everything you could imagine that you might need for a trip into the temple as a first century Jew, you can buy for ridiculous prices right in the court of the Gentiles. It's like a hundred times worse, this extortion and the price they were paying than what you would pay for like maybe soda or candy at a movie theater. You know, you ever been to walk to a movie theater? What, $9 for M&Ms? Are you crazy? Fine, I'll take it because there's no other place to go. What about beer or parking at a stadium for a football game? $30 to park my Kia? Are you crazy? Those looked like deals compared to what was going on in the court of the Gentiles. So let me tell you how it would happen, right? People arrive at the temple with their sacrificial animals, their sacrificial lambs in tow. And then what happens is as you walk in, the experts, the the rabbis and the, the experts and the priests will inspect your lamb, your animal, whatever it is, and they will determine whether or not it is fit or unfit. Well, guess what happened 95% of the time, unless you knew someone. Oh, I'm sorry, your lamb is unfit for sacrifice. But don't worry, we have some you can buy right here. Well, that's convenient. So they're forced to buy these temple-provided animals. Probably weren't any better than the ones they had, but, you know, they were deemed unfit. So they're forced to buy these animals at ridiculously marked-up prices. But here's what makes it even worse. What kind of money are all these people using? Roman money. Well, I'm sorry, you can't buy this animal with Roman money. Well, all I have is Don't worry about it. We have money changers right over there. So you would take, for lack of a better, you understand, so you would go with your Roman dollar, go to the money changer to get temple currency, like it was a temple Bitcoin maybe. I don't know. But you go to, you get temple currency, and you'd probably get about 10 cents for every Roman dollar in temple currency. So if you were selling a lamb for $50, Roman dollars, you'd have to get enough money, 10 cents on the dollar, to cover it in temple currency, and guess who get to keep the difference? The temple does. And the poor... You know, earlier in the passage, it said that there were people selling doves. You know what they were selling doves for? Because they knew the poor people really couldn't afford lambs. And doves weren't necessarily a proper sacrifice for Passover. It had to be lambs, but they made an exception. Well, if you're poor, don't worry. We'll sell you a dove at exorbitant prices. It's cheaper than a lamb, but, you know, you can buy a dove. So the dove was meant to take advantage of the poor. It's very convenient, right? The money-changing temples, are, uh, the money-changing tables are set up, exchanging for Roman dollars for temple currency, pennies on the dollar. The poor who can't afford lambs are given these ridiculous doves. And common people hated it. It's a very corrupt system. But they had no other choice. There's only one temple, one place for worship. It's their only option. So that's the history of the passage. Interesting stuff, right? That's the scene that Jesus is walking into. Let's talk about the spiritual. What about God? What does he do 
and why and how does he do it? I've called this Temple Tuesday. So, you know, you've had this Holy Week, right? You had Palm Sunday and they had Monday, Thursday. Oh, I'm going to add some weeks to the Holy Week just for you guys, right? So this is, you know, you had Palm Sunday, which we learned last week is actually Palm Monday. And this is Temple Tuesday. So next, this coming Easter, we're going to celebrate Temple Tuesday at Grace Life. Okay, we're going to start a new thing. Hashtag Temple Tuesday. It's going to be great. Okay, this is the day after Palm Monday. And I want to talk about the barren fig tree on their way to the temple. They run into this fig tree. Now, understand, this is not the first time Jesus has used fig trees to teach. He's already taught the parable of fig trees two different times, a tree without fruit. And he's prepared them for this day. And that morning, he's heading back into Jerusalem. They've been in the hotel in Bethany overnight after the Palm Sunday and all that stuff. They went back. They're coming back in in the morning. It's going to be a long day. He needs some food. He's hungry, the scripture says, so he spots a fig tree ahead with leaves. Let me explain why this is significant. First of all, I want you to know that fig trees in the Holy Land are like palmetto bushes here, everywhere. They're very common. So, but it's not fig season yet. But from a distance, Jesus sees what looks like a fig tree with ripe fruit. Here's why. It's an important detail. Because people don't realize this often here because we don't have a lot of fig trees here. But figs actually come before the leaves on a fig tree. So a tree that's a healthy fig tree will have figs and then leaves come after. Now from a distance they see, wow, it's not even fig season yet, but there's a fig tree with leaves. Man, maybe it's two or three weeks ahead of season. That'd be great, right? It's got big, beautiful, green, lush leaves. It looks like a very healthy fig tree from a distance. Showing leaves several weeks early, they all see it and they expect, all right, free figs for breakfast. But then when they get closer, there are no figs. This big, beautiful tree has no fruit. It only has leaves. It looked great from a distance, but when you got close, it was useless. And Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And later, the disciples will remember him doing this. At first, they just think, oh, Jesus is a little frustrated. Easy, Jesus, it's just a fig tree. This isn't random. There's no such thing as something happening random. We talked about that last week. There's no randomness in Holy Week. What Jesus said is setting up with the fig tree is an incredible, memorable, listen, object lesson for what is about to happen a couple hours later and something the Jew or the disciples would remember forever. So that's the barren fig tree. Now let's talk about the barren temple. This is day one. Remember Jesus said, I will tear down this temple in three days and rise and and build it again. Remember he said that? This is actually day one of him tearing down the temple. Right here, this moment. This is day one of of three days of tearing down the temple. Just like he promised. He arrives at the temple Commerce is bustling. People are getting fleeced all over the place, left and right, all happening right there in the court of the Gentiles where the whole world is supposed to be able to come in and worship Jehovah. And Jews from all over are coming to this big, beautiful, leafy temple that looks great, full of fruit. It has to be. Look at the leaves. They're here to connect with Jehovah, receive a spiritual blessing to celebrate the anniversary of Passover. But there is no blessing to be had in this temple. There's no fruit. There's no connection with Jehovah. This temple is corrupt. It is worthless. 
And just like the fig tree, the temple looks great from a distance with beautiful leaves, but there is no fruit. And they have filled the court of the Gentiles with this corrupted business. They want to keep the Gentiles out. You remember, by the way, how many times in this study of Mark have we seen that this actually was a continual struggle with the disciples? Why are you healing Gentiles, Jesus? Why are you healing and feeding Gentiles? What are you doing? Why are you allowing Gentiles to approach you? Remember, they've had this struggle time and time again. So Jesus clears out the court of the Gentiles, knocking over cash renders. I would have loved to have seen it. I would have helped him. Yeah, let's get him, Jesus. Throwing down. I just love that, right? It'd be great. Knocking over cash registers, clearing out vendors and money changers. And then, once he's done with that, he cordons it off. Doesn't allow anyone else to bring their business in. He's taken over the court of the Gentiles on Passover week. Crazy, isn't it? Now, people could come in, but they couldn't bring their their bags carrying anything, because anybody carrying anything, it's for business. You could just come in by yourself. He takes it over. In the court of the Gentiles. I love it. See, Jesus didn't come to rid Jerusalem of Gentiles. He didn't come to rid them of Rome or to make Rome righteous like the Jews wanted. Instead, he cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. And then he starts teaching, and this is an amazing part. This is probably the most amazing part of this whole story to me. See, the clearing of the temple isn't the part that really should grab our attention what he does afterwards for probably a couple hours. It wasn't just like one line. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. No, he starts teaching. And people are coming in all day. They have to leave their bags, their money changer, and their lamb selling and their dove selling bags outside. But they come in and he's teaching. Is deep, intense teaching. You see, the biggest obstacle to the kingdom of David being reestablished wasn't Rome. Rome wasn't the problem. It was the temple. They had become so obsessed with their political heritage and economic hopes for the temple that lost sight of what the real purpose of the temple was. Matter of fact, it's in Ezekiel 37, 27 and 28. Here's what God said about his temple. My dwelling place, that's the temple. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people Then the nations, Gentiles, the nations will know that I am the Lord who cleanses Israel, sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Wow. That's what he's teaching them. And it's so foreign to all of them. What? Really? And the scripture says they are mesmerized. Everyone. He's got everyone's attention. And he begins to reinstate the reason for the temple. It's to be a place for all, not just Jews. And he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And everyone's captivated by this, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they see the response of all the people. And what they see is a huge, huge threat. It's quite a dramatic scene, isn't it? This temple cleansing, this teaching, it's an event the powerful people in charge 
cannot dismiss. They've got to get rid of Jesus and fast. He's going to ruin Passover. He's going to destroy our temple business. He's going to bring too much attention from Rome. We've got to fix this. All right, you ready for the personal? I want to talk about cleansing our temple. This was my Sunday sermon preview. Is Jesus more concerned about who Christians vote for or what kind of kingdom fruit they are producing? So let me just tell you, this sermon preview, more than any other that I've ever put up, and I've put up a lot of them, right? Like, you know, going back to uh, the garden at Church of the Palms in the four years, I put up, you know, 50, you know, about 50 a year, a lot. This sermon preview invoked unbelievable rage on my timeline from both sides of the political aisle. Biden supporters, Trump supporters, some of it, both sides, was so ridiculous and vitriolic and full of hate, I had to delete them. Like, every time, I can't believe you said that. What are you thinking? And I think one of the things we struggle with in our temple today, which is us, right, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is the same thing first century Jews did. Lately, it seems like the church in America has been at war with itself over who they think Jesus would have us vote for. We've obsessed over political policies and choices that have very little to do with the kingdom of heaven. Fighting politically for passions and values and freedoms and welfare while neglecting our real kingdom purpose, which is fruit, discipleship. And I think what happens is both people, the, maybe people that are more progressive Christians and people that are more conservative Christians, and by the way, there is room in the scripture for both. Both have righteousness in their heart as far as what they desire. Both of these groups try to impose roles that the church should be taking onto politicians and government. Well, how that's working out for you, I want to know. See, Jesus, listen to this, Jesus never instructed his disciples to try to influence Rome. Not once. What did he say? Give Caesar what's his and give God what's his. He went out of his way to never criticize Rome, not because he was afraid. What would he have to be afraid of? He's Jesus. I mean, the only thing he could be afraid of is being killed. Well, guess what? That happened to him, but not because of political reasons. And I see this from both progressive and conservative Christians there's a long list of issues that, you know, I'm not going to go over the list today. It's pointless. Look, I'm not saying that as Christians, politics should not play a role in our lives. Of course it should. We do have a responsibility as believers, also in America, to fulfill our civic duty and to be involved in the political process. So I'm not saying that. Don't take, it, don't take this the wrong way. And I want to say it again because I want you to listen carefully in case... You know, I'm droning on and one part goes in one ear and out the other. Well, Joe said we can't vote. I never said that. Joe said we can't be politically active. I never said that either. You know what happens, though? We tend to outsource much of our kingdom work to politicians. We project onto them what we think Jesus would want them to do, but it's really what Jesus wants us to do. And I will tell you, as a pastor... And I've been involved in a few churches. So I have friends in different parts of the country. I have personally seen examples of people in the last few years, in the last few months, in the last few weeks, have just gone 
stark, raving mad off the rails. Both Biden supporters and Trump supporters. Never any libertarians. We're always right down. It's perfect. We don't do anything wrong. Just kidding. And I will tell you, it's not just lay people. Sadly, a lot of pastors. I mean, I've seen some pastors post some stuff about Biden and Trump, and I'm thinking, dude, what are you thinking? They become so consumed idolizing politics as the answer, as their identity. You know what happens? Both sides, they hurt their testimony and their ability to be fruitful for the kingdom. And just like the temple, these political passions can very easily... Remember what happened with the temple? It it was supposed to be something good, and what happened? It turned into something bad. Why? Because it became an idol. These political passions can become our idols, distracting us from the real purpose of the church. And as with Israel, here's what I see often happens, right? Idolatry doesn't just manifest itself in misplaced hope. And by the way, if your hope is ever in any politician, you've got the wrong type of hope. But you know what else idolatry creates? See if this rings a bell. Hate and bitterness. Hurt feelings, broken relationships. See, both conservative and progressive Christians can easily be distracted by these things at what cost? Producing fruit. We become very green and leafy with no fruit. All right. I hope I didn't lose everybody on YouTube. (laughs) Let's talk about what would Jesus do. Um, Is this it? Is it something wrong? Here we go. Um, We've lost the slide. That's okay. I'll just go through it. If you can bring it up again, great. If not, I'll just keep going. No, get that guy off. He's ugly. Get that guy off. So, um, yeah, just alt-tab that screen, Ronnie, and get the video off because we're delayed here. Okay, so I'm just going to ask you a couple things about what would Jesus do. First, I'm going to read a verse in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. We can get that off. All right, we'll just, all right, there we go. Just just keep it on that for now. That's fine. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Let me read this verse to you. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Did you hear that? The temple was the issue in the first century. It's the, temp- the temple is the issue today. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. See, what do you think God's goal is for the church today? What do you think his greatest desire would be? You know, one thing you won't find Jesus doing in the Gospels, complaining and advocating for some sort of change in Rome. Not saying you can't advocate for change in your country, but it certainly wasn't Jesus' primary focus. Jesus' focus was never to fix government. He had one focus, to save his people and to build a fruitful temple. He had the power to cleanse Rome, but he didn't. He cleansed the temple. He had no interest in fixing Rome when he entered Jerusalem. No, he had one interest, his father's business. Now, if his father's business happened to intersect with the temple, then great. 
What was his business? Here was his business. I'm going to tear down the temple in three days and build a new one. Well, we don't have a temple today, right? Or do we? See, Jesus has made his church into what Israel and the temple were supposed to be. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 1, 5, and 6, there's explanation of that. You can read it later if you want. And we see it became a fulfillment of, a, of a, the prophecy that we talked about in Exodus 19, 5, and 6. And you know why? Because the, the temple in the first century had become fruitless. He says, you are the new temple. You are the new Israel. And you are the nation of priests to the world. There is a temple being renovated and expanded and built right now. And you are part of it. How thrilling should that be for us? God is building his holy temple without one brick. So that's what Jesus would want from us. That our first priority would be to make sure the temple, us, is fruitful. That's his number one priority. But now let's talk about cleansing. It's a little scary. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Here's what Paul says. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For are we the temple of the living God? As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Church, we have got to make sure that this temple is fruitful. What if Jesus came in today and cleansed our temple and then didn't allow anything back in through the walls that wasn't his will? What would that look like for us? What if you went through and said, okay, I'm here to cleanse the temple. Let's start with your Facebook feed. Okay, I'm here to cleanse the temple. Let's start with your conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, I'm here to cleanse the temple. Let's start with what's on your DVR. Let's look on what's on your search history. See, the mistake we make, we often want to keep the church for people like us. But you know what we also do? We struggle and we begin to make the church like the court of the Gentiles. We may not be ripping people off, but we make it very hard for outsiders, in other words, people who might have a different opinion than us, to feel comfortable. That division is not just politics. Politics is a great object lesson for what we're talking about today, right, on the calendar, but politics is just an example of anything that keeps the temple from being fruitful. Here's what happens. We begin to make sure and work very hard to make sure our church looks great from a distance. Nice leaves. Good marketing. But what do we find? What would Jesus find on closer inspection? How confident would we, would you, be if Jesus took a really close inspection of our conversations with each other, political or otherwise, to see if there's any fruit. And what's the fruit? Convincing someone you're right? No. The fruit is the gospel and all those whom God has called and is drawing to himself. 
See, Jesus is not really concerned about your politics. He's concerned about his connection to his people. And he's concerned about their connection to each other. He's less concerned about their connection to a worldly, temporary government. His business is not the GOP or the DNC. His business is his church producing fruit. And guess what? He has used both the DNC and the GOP to produce fruit when it fits his agenda. Both have worked against his agenda, but that doesn't stop him, does it? He keeps producing fruit. Jesus will use anyone and everyone to produce fruit because his business is the temple and not the government. So what's the point of this sermon? I'm not here to beat up anyone, make anyone feel guilty. That's not the point at all. As a matter of fact, let me be clear when I say this. If you have passionate political views, it doesn't mean you're not fruitful. Do you understand? God made us with passion, and you can have passion about your politics. Certainly acceptable. What you have to make sure is that your politics don't become an idol that disturbs the process of the temple being fruitful. I'm afraid that many times in the last few years, okay, the last few generations, it has. We have to make sure that we, the temple, are not just nice with green leaves, but we have fruit for all who see it and come close. Heavenly Dad, first of all, I'm so thankful that you've given us an eternal purpose that allows us to transcend earthly tribes and politics and agendas and passions. And while those things aren't necessarily wrong in themselves, Lord, we recognize because we are human, just like the nation of Israel took a very good thing like the temple and turned it into an idol worship thing, we know that we are capable of the same thing in our lives. So we're going to ask you, Jesus, we are asking today, please come in and cleanse our temple. Whatever is in the way of being fruitful, remove it. Because our first and number one priority is to be a nation of priests to the whole world. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, that was probably one of the most uh, political messages we've probably had here. There have been some political messages in the Gospel of Mark, right? Because politics played a big part of what Jesus was dealing with. And again, I want to make sure you understand... My heart is not to say you can't be involved in a process, but you cannot allow that process to derail the most important calling that God's children have, which is to serve him as part of his temple. Amen? Amen. Next week, McCurdy's in person. Yes. We will have outside seating as well for those of you that want to come, but you're a little afraid about going inside. We will provide comfortable outside seating. Well, comfortable. Comfortable outside seating as well. Uh, So that'll be there for you as well. So we're going to have all those things. More information about Grace Like Kids later in the week. Uh, We love you. And if you need anything during that time, 
Let us know we have your back. Oh, one more thing. Make sure you sign up to help if you haven't yet. We're going to need a lot of help to relaunch Grace Life. Thank you very much. Have a great day.